0: Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCann. I never thought I'd see this day. Welcome to episode 20 of Clarity. Now that we've solved the problem of gender inequality, we're going to end this season and move on to a new topic. Of course, I'm kidding. We didn't solve anything. We only realized how bad things are. There's a tremendous amount of work everyone needs to do if we want to make a real difference for people of all genders and identities. But we are ending the season. We're going to reboot and come up with a fresh approach. We'd love your input on that. Should we broaden the scope, covering all sorts of topics? Or should we double down and really focus on gender equality and try to make some ground on that issue? You tell me. As always, you can reach me by email via feedback at on Twitter at M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M. That's also our SoundCloud handle, where we've been posting more updates and clips of content. Do we have a season finale for you? We've got part two of our interview with Ann Gregory. We've got a main story concerning female CEOs dominating the military-industrial complex. And with some help, I'm going to try to define the term patriarchy. It's amazing we haven't done that already. But right now, I'd like to sit down with Will and do a quick recap of the year. So Larry, now that we're more than a year into this podcast, what do you think you succeeded at? What do you think you failed at? And what kind of aspirations do you have for the show? For starters, by doing this podcast, I met and interviewed some fascinating women. I'd like to thank Miranda, Alex, Vanessa, Mariana, Chelsea, Brianna, Sarah, Miri, Nadia, and Anne for being so generous with their time and for sharing their wonderful perspectives. Did you have a favorite interview? I'm not going to fall for that trap. Nice try, Will. What else do you think you've gained from this podcast? Well, I truly learned a lot about feminism, the issues women face, and systemic obstacles to gender equality. I hope the listeners did too. And Will, I hope you were paying attention. I was, I was. Yeah, I gotta say, I knew things were bad, but I had no idea. I can relate to that as well. Doing some of this research and talking to these women was truly eye-opening. And I hope we both challenge ourselves to continue to educate ourselves on this topic. I also want to add, as hard as it is to believe, I don't have a whole lot of experience as an interview. It was a fun challenge to embrace that role. And if any of you listeners have any feedback in that respect, or any suggestions of people to be interviewed, we'd greatly appreciate it. we focused on the positive so far. Where do you think we fell short? I gotta say, we had a lot of trouble connecting with people and movements that I hope were allied with our beliefs. Can you think of any reasons why that might be the case? Uh, I think my brand of comedy, paired with the extremely serious topics, might have been off-putting. Also, us being heterosexual white men doesn't exactly encourage people from other spaces to interact with us. And I totally understand the mentality we don't need to hear from more white men, which is why I tried to share other perspectives as much as possible. What else was there? Several listeners found my voice to be grating. And to that I say, you mispronounced great. Anyways, what other goals did you have with this podcast? To be honest... I was hoping to foster a community that encouraged dialogue, and we completely failed at that. We got a few iTunes reviews. Please give us a review on iTunes. But overall, very little interaction from our listeners. I encourage you all to speak up. I want this show to be as good as possible. Why do you think we failed to create a community? I think not being on Twitter from the get-go was a mistake. And also having no Twitter presence prior to the podcast was also a mistake. The website had no comment capability. So I don't think we were making it easy on the listener. And email does not seem to be the way to go. That's true. That's true. What else comes to mind? We really struggled to stick to a steady release schedule. Even with a season finale, we're coming pretty late. We can do better. Especially Will. You need to do a lot better, Will. All right. All right. I agree. And I hope we use this hiatus to really deal with that issue. Also, tell us what kind of length you want. How frequent should the podcast come out? Two times a month? Once a month? Every week? I don't think that's going to happen, but your feedback is valuable. Any final thoughts, Larry? We tackled some extremely dense topics, and I think we could have done better at breaking them down into more digestible portions. I don't worship at the altar of brevity, but a compromise could be made. I agree. It's a delicate balance, especially when you want to capture the nuance of an issue. I think the easiest solution would be breaking up the longer sections. Maybe I could be involved more, or we could find a fun way to present the information. I agree, and I do want to make it clear. I have absolutely no regrets about this podcast. It's been a very fulfilling process. I truly enjoyed it, too. I look forward to returning to it and getting some more clarity. Hey, that's my line. Stay in your lane, Will. We've covered a lot of ground on this podcast so far, but shockingly, we overlooked defining a key term, the patriarchy. I'm not confident that I can fully articulate this concept alone. Mary, do you mind educating me about the patriarchy?
1: You should be an authority on the subject. You've been indoctrinated since birth.
0: That's true, but it can be a challenge to see what's directly under your nose.
1: I cannot relate to your idiomatic expression involving olfactory sensors. But your point is understood. Allow me to elucidate on the damage of patriarchy. Alert me if your simian brain begins to struggle.
0: Thanks for being so magnanimous, Miri. You're truly munificent.
1: Nothing you utter from that primitive orifice, colloquially known as a piehole, will ever impress me. It disgusts me how you use it to consume nutrients, intake oxygen, as well as expel gases and food you are unable to process. Without sterilizing this duct, you then use it to express intimacy. I wish to correct my prior statement. Humans with healthy relationships use their pie holes for intimacy. Larry, you use it primarily to voice complaints. Can we please
0: discuss the patriarchy?
1: A cis-heterosexual white male dictating the topic of conversation. What an organic seg. The following excerpt is from The Guardian written by Charlotte Higgins. The word patriarchy literally means rule of the father. From the ancient Greek. There are many different ideas about its extent and force. Some people have used it to describe patterns derived from the structure of the family to others. It is an entire system of oppression built on misogyny and the exploitation and brutalization of women. It is not simple to produce a concise definition of patriarchy, but at its simplest, it conveys the existence of a societal structure of male supremacy that operates at the expense of women. Part of the idea of patriarchy is this oppression of women is multilayered. It operates through inequalities at the level of the law and the state, but also through the home and the workplace. It is upheld by powerful cultural norms and supported by tradition, education and religion. It reproduces itself endlessly through these norms and structures, which are themselves patriarchal in nature. And thus it has a way of seeming natural or inevitable. In a liberal context, It is obscured by piecemeal advances in gender equality, because it offers the idea of a structure of power relations, rather than a series of specific sexist acts. Patriarchy accommodates the idea that not all men enthusiastically uphold it or benefit equally from it, and that some women may do a great deal towards supporting it. It also allows for the fact that however much we might loathe it, we all, perforce, participate in it. Another perspective is shared by Barbara Moamusa, from whereyourvoice.com. Patriarchy places power in the hands of men, and by doing so, becomes negligent to the fact that people don't need to identify as male to be just as abusive. That men can also be victims of their own oppressive systems. Patriarchy places hypermasculinity at the forefront of male identity and frames the idea that sex is a rite of passage to manhood. Patriarchy prevents men from talking about these things in a progressive way that promotes healing and honest emotional communication. Patriarchy silences the voices of those that don't fit into the caricature of what society assumes abuse victims or perpetrators look like. And to change this, we must adamantly reject the idea that abuse has a limited narrative. Even more importantly, men must work to adamantly reject this. If we want to change the reality of the society we live in, abuse must be recognized in every face it wears, and then rejected, and defeated as it attempts to invade the space. Recognize the dangers of patriarchy and realize that we are all at risk of being harmed by it. If you're a man looking to change the narrative surrounding patriarchy, begin with self-reflection, engage in self-change, and then demand the same change within your spaces.
0: I wanna give a special shout out to Big Rhett. She's a Canadian feminist blogger and is often the face of memes that are critical of the feminist movement's focus on patriarchy, which I find ironic since her personal information was released, she's received death and rape threats and had to go into hiding. It seems a bit counterintuitive to use a woman like that as your poster child for why misogyny is not a big issue when she had real life consequences for speaking up against men's right activists. From the thedailydot.com, Aja Romano quotes the playwright Sabrina England saying, It blows my mind how people are accusing the red-haired feminist activist of bullying tactics and opposing freedom of speech and silencing the MRAs. She had her personal information plastered all over the internet and is having people stalking her and has endured countless death and rape threats. Now that is bullying and silencing tactics. I hope things get better, Big Red. Next up, I continue my interview with Ann Gregory. What is something that is too unfair to share? Or is there any line? Is everything up for grabs?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's like the Nora Ephron, everything is copy. I've been drawing more from my own life. I had really, really debilitating postpartum depression with both my kids. And this women's group helped me to get through it. And it was pretty awesome. But I'm finally writing a project on that. It's a comedy. (laughs) Sounds funny. But like just drawing on real experiences and the humor in there. So I've been doing more of that before I would make up more characters I think more that you're like eh, I'm not perfect fuck it I'm not like Lena Dunham imperfect either I'm not rarefied New York I'm more like postpartum you know going to Albertsons and buying Tylenol and trying to kill myself kind of you know that's funny it's funny <laughs> it's funny everyone has some pain that can spark some comedy and um I don't know Lena Dunham
0: how do you feel about her
2: I think she's so funny, but I also think she (laughs) represents oversharing. I think she's wildly talented. Everyone's like, nepotism, like, of course. But every single episode of Girls, in my opinion, had a couple laugh out loud lines. She's a great writer. She overshares a lot. So there is like a line, but it's for each person to decide what they're comfortable with. What do you share on Instagram? Who's sharing exactly what's going on in their life? No one.
0: I definitely want to return to postpartum yeah. depression if you're willing to discuss. Yeah, it. sure, sure. But also, what I'm curious about as a writer, drawing from your own experiences, yeah. that totally makes sense to me. I'm more curious about if someone shared something intimate with you, would you ever put that into some of your work, or is that violating their trust?
2: I think it can inform what your work is. Yeah, and if you're feeling uncomfortable about it, just check in with the person and say that I'm completely changing the character's look or completely changing the character's age, or something like that, and it doesn't have your name. But I think that if you're just getting a part of that, or sharing a part of their story, if it's just a scenario like an embarrassing date that they went on, maybe just ask them, this is really, really funny, can I use this story? And they can say yes or no. But if it's just a story, and you're using just an aspect of it, I feel like, go ahead. How can you not... Be informed by other people's fun stories, too. Like, I'm not saying stealing them at all, but I guess I haven't really done that that much.
0: Has anyone done that to you?
2: Yes, that has happened to me. Um, I steal more characters. Like, I meet a fun character, and I'm like, oh, my God, that person, I have to use their kind of way of speaking or the way that they move. How can I get that character into something that I want to use? And I store that away. But I don't think I steal as many stories, per se.
0: Are you willing to talk about postpartum depression?
2: Sure, yes. So my daughter's five. She just turned five. And after I had her, I was so happy for like three and a half months. And then my hair started to fall out in clumps and my hormones were changing. What was going on physiologically is the pregnancy hormones were leaving my body. And I was returning to a normal state. I didn't know this at the time, but my thyroid was also overactive. So I had hyperthyroidism which sounds cool because I was very skinny, skinniest I've ever been in my life, but I was sweating so much, like buckets and buckets. I'd wake up, my husband would be drenched in my sweat in the morning. It was disgusting. And in the time of a week, I went from being pretty normal but sweaty to, oh, I have to kill myself. This is the only solution. Like, I just have to kill myself. So with my daughter and, like, the baby Bjorn, I Googled ways to kill yourself and like the most common way is, I shouldn't be saying this, don't commit suicide, please call somebody. It's never the answer. But I Googled and it was Tylenol and I was like, I've got that. And I only had like nine pills left and that was not enough to kill me, just enough to permanently fuck me up. So I I went to Albertsons with my daughter on the baby Bjorn, practically skipping because I had the answer. I'm going to kill myself and I like bought two (laughs) bottles of like Tylenol. And then I got home and a voice in the back of my head was like, this isn't normal. This isn't right. You were happy a week ago. Your daughter is here cooing. You're breastfeeding her. What the fuck? Her life will not be better if you end it. So I called my old therapist who immediately contacted a psychiatrist who also contacted an endocrinologist. So I had all of these tests all at once and I had hyperthyroidism, which can cause depression in conjunction with blah, blah, blah. And it was just the severe postpartum depression. And I didn't know that you could get it that late. I thought if you got through the first couple months, you were totally fine. And it was like a, a different person entered my body. So if you have that kind of depression, please, please, please get help. I got help by getting on thyroid medication. And then I also got on Zoloft, which was life changing and helped me. People were like, just diet and exercise. No, my body was fucked up then. And I needed those drugs. And also around that time, I had been going to this mommy and me group and everyone there seemed so fucking happy, like so happy and good for them. They had normal concerns like finding the right pediatrician or like clogged milk ducts. And I was like, I want to murder myself. I really want to murder myself. So <laughs> I left one of these groups and this other mom found me and Long story short is we formed this informal mommy and me. It was just like a me group. And it was just moms who went and had a drink once a week. And we told each other the worst shit that was going on in our lives. And it was a safe space to do that, which made me feel good because I'm like, oh, not every mom feels happy right away. And that's okay. Like You can feel enormous happiness with your daughter, but also be sad. And that doesn't make you a bad person. It can be very normal.
0: First of all, thank you for sharing. Yeah, no problem. How common is this? Do you have any idea?
2: Man, I, I should know these statistics and I don't. I know what I had was pretty not common. Most people get hypothyroidism, which means that it's not as active as it should be. So you get very tired and lethargic. Mine was like I was up all the time. I was wired. It was like I was on meth and I was sweating and angry. <laughs> angry, which kind of turned to depression. So I think more than we know, having a baby that kind of shocks your system, is, it's, a, it's a lot on the system for a lot of people. I love being a mom, I really do, I I don't regret anything. When I had my son, I knew that I would probably go through the same thing. So I just had appointments ready to go at like three months and I like went on Zoloft right away and there was nothing approaching suicidal thoughts in the second time and then I got over the hump and it was great.
0: But you still felt some oh, some some aggravation,
2: right? yeah, yeah. And I lost weight really fast and then, yeah. Which I know sounds great, but it sucked. Like I'd rather be chubby and happy. <laughs> It's
0: liberating to hear you talk so freely about this. I think yeah. it's something, especially mothers, must feel a lot of stigma. Like, I don't think most other people would understand, not understand is the wrong word, but when you say, I wanted to kill myself, I had my baby in the Bjorn, most people would just drop everything and be like, you're terrible, you should feel bad. Yeah. But this is a real issue that affects no. many, many people.
2: Yeah, and, and there are definitely people who will judge it. What was amazing about this group of women is that there wasn't judgment. There's this false notion that you're gonna be happy all the time as a mom, and it's just not true. It's like a change of identity for a lot of people. There are the hormonal shifts. You're not sleeping. Sleep deprivation can be everything. You're in general not getting as much nutrition. If you're breastfeeding, they're taking out nutrients from your body, and hormones are involved in that. It's just a fucking shock to the system. So my suggestion is get the help you need, whatever that help is, and fuck anyone who gives you shit for going on a drug if you need it. Yeah, okay. We're over-medicated as a society. But if for three months you need to go on an antidepressant, go on an antidepressant. No judgment. If you don't need it, that's great. No judgment there. But let's not stigmatize mental illness. Let's get over that shit. And then a lot of mental illness for people is not a forever thing. It can come and go. Having these avenues for help and not saying, you should try to nap when your baby naps and then you wouldn't get depressed. It's like, no, fuck that.
0: And that's probably coming from either men like me yeah. or people who may not even have a child.
2: No. And, and here's the thing. It's probably from some well-meaning moms who that worked for them. So they're coming from a place of like, well, in my experience, this worked. But the thing is, is every child and every mom is different. So what worked for one person is not necessarily going to work for the other person. For me, that didn't work. I needed fucking hard-ass drugs to get me through that period.
0: I'm glad you found them. And Thank you. I think you, your voice here is really important because, again, there's all this pushback about this. Oh, it should be totally natural. You should never take medication. And like you're saying, this worked for me. It's going to work for you.
2: Yeah, just get the help and test your thyroid levels. If therapy is not working and your diet and exercise is not working, Maybe try a low dose of an antidepressant for that period. I'm not saying go on it for life. I'm saying try what works for you, especially with mental health. There's no one size fits all. And here was the other thing. Once I announced that I was going to kill myself and I was like, I can't slip my wrists because before I Googled stuff, I was like, well, that would cause a mess for my husband. It would be traumatic for him to find me like that. The, the logic that goes through a fucked up depressed person's brain is amazing. So I was like, I have to just down a bottle of pills and choke it down. And I hate taking pills, but I'll make it work. I'll put it in a smoothie or some shit like that, and I will eat it. And when I announced that, people immediately helped me. Immediately. When I was finally honest, people immediately helped me. So if people judged me, they did it quietly and from afar because I never heard it. I just heard, we want to help. How do we help? And it was wonderful. So I was really lucky that way. Just a lot of lovely women helped me.
0: What helped you say that aloud? Admit that you were feeling these things?
2: I think it was when I got home with like the the Tylenol, and I was with my baby, and I saw my baby. And in that moment, I, I literally almost heard a different version of my voice behind my voice telling me, this is not normal. Call someone. Before I called someone, I told my husband in tears, and he was like, let me help you. He was also lovely about it. And then I just immediately, the next day, saw a bunch of doctors and got immediate, immediate help.
0: It's hard for me to, to go on from here.
2: No. Uh, yeah. But if anyone is out there and is listening and does need help, if you want to, you can email me and a N N E T H E G R E G at gmail.com. You can email me directly and talk about it and I can try to get you help.
0: Again, thank you so yeah, much for you're welcome. not only sharing your story, but now being a resource to other people in need.
2: If I can help anyone, yeah. I wrote one piece and it was in Mind Body Green. I was doing a blog at the time. This was before I was really staffed on shows and stuff, so I had a little more time. And they put it up there and some people found my email and contacted me, and I would like to help whoever. Again, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Are there any other elements of being a mother that you think are either overlooked or can be hugely problematic.
2: Hmm. Well, something that fascinates me about living in Los Angeles and being a mom and coming from the comedy world is just like how few women choose that path, which is great. But continuing those friendships is kind of hard sometimes. And to keep them going, it's always worthwhile. To have friends that aren't just moms, if you're a mom, it's really cool because it's very hard to, It's kind of hard to do because your kids kind of become your life. Or if you're a working mom, it, for me, it's just like work and then my family. And then to carve out that time with some non-mom friends, it's great because they have a different perspective and it's fun. And it, it's fun to not be in your head. And I have a bunch of female comedy friends who don't have kids and they're so fucking funny. And it's just a joy to hang out with them and get a few drinks and shoot the shit. And it's just so fun.
0: That's wonderful. How has having children affected your career in comedy?
2: I think it's only helped, honestly. Like, I'm not, like, a name or anything. I work consistently. I'm very lucky that way. And I don't go out at night as much anymore. Very rarely do I. They focus me in a way because it's like I only have a few hours here and there to write or to do my thing. And then I have to go home and, like, be a mom. And I have to be a mom when I'm a mom. I don't always succeed. Sometimes I'm on my phone Sometimes I'm down in a glass of wine or whatever stereotype you can throw in there. But like they just kind of knock you out of it. Like literally my son will be like, mom, mom, over here, mom, 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 come here, mom, mom. Are your eyes closed? Mom. Like he just is like my little Zen master getting me out of my head. It's the fucking best thing that's ever happened to me. Even though I got suicidal, it was worth it. But it's not for everyone. You don't have to do it. It just for me, like I hit 33 and I was like, I am having a child. It was like primal.
0: What helped you prepare for that?
2: Nothing. Nothing. Because if you're in the arts, you're pretty selfish. I don't know. Aging? Literally just biology and aging. And then I had to just learn as I went. Nothing prepared me. And I didn't read enough books. I read like one book. I tried to read something on sleep training and I'm like, I'm not going to ignore my kid. Like That's for some people and they're great. I just couldn't do it. Nothing prepared me other than meeting your kid. And then my daughter is so different than my son. You think you know how to parent, and then it's totally different with another one. So it's fun (laughs) and tiring, but whatever, life's tiring.
0: You mentioned losing a lot of your free time.
2: Yeah, no free time.
0: How did you adjust to that?
2: I don't know if I fully have adjusted. I think it's going to maybe get better because my son will start sleeping more from 6 in the morning till... Eight at night, it's either kids or work. And then I've got an hour, hour and a half before, like, I need to fucking start going to sleep or my next day will be murder. Especially, like, if I'm in the writer's room all day and I have to be with it. I just can't be tired and also think. So pretty fucking lame, man. <laughs> Reading uh, a book on Teddy Roosevelt. Looking forward to tacos I'm having tonight. That's that's about it.
0: It's the little things. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about gender equality and Mm -hmm. problems in the workplace. So what are some lessons concerning that that you want to make sure your children learn?
2: I want my son to be respectful of women and to know that women can be funny and smart. And then also to, when it's an appropriate age, teach him about consent, because I think that's going to be life changing if we start teaching young men. And not just keep yourself safe and don't drink too much. No, if she's drunk, don't have sex. We need to have these conversations. So when he's two now, I mean, I'm not going to have a conversation with, don't worry. And then my daughter, I've already had to have some conversations about stuff because there was an incident at school with a boy just about respecting her privacy and respecting other people's privacy. Also trying to tell her that she, both my kids, that they can do what they want to do, not to put them in a role. And I I do still catch myself, even though I'm like cognizant of this. She'll look really cute in something. I'll be like, you look cute. And I'm like, oh, damn, that's what she's going to get her worth from. Yeah, I'm a work in progress, too. You know, she's, t- she's just really fucking cute.
1: <sighs> it is hard to it's deprogram hard. all this. I
2: know it's hard, man. And then I wanted to do not gender neutral clothing, but like more like she can wear like navy and green and you know, who cares? And she can wear dinosaur T-shirts. And then, of course, and this is the classic thing, like she wants to only wear pink. Like she has some of that shit and she will rewear like her pink cat dress 40 times in a row. So I don't know. You can you can deprogram them sometimes. Then they also have these inherent things. And then I don't know if that comes from social pressure too of other little girls at her school liking that stuff. It's, it's complicated.
0: What are some of those influences that you think?
2: Well... Right now it's like Hatchimals, but that's boys and girls a little bit. They're like little eggs that have crappy plastic toys in them. Sorry if you're sponsored by Hatchimals. Um, There's Disney Princess stuff. It's just kind of in the air. It's fucking weird. They immediately just are like, Disney everything, yes, I love. It's, It's weird. Can you relate
0: to that yourself when you were growing up?
2: Well, I think the Disney Princess revival was when I was eight, And I had older sisters, so it wasn't a huge thing for me. And when did Ariel come out? When did The Little Mermaid come out? Early 90s. Early 90s, something like that. So yeah, I think I was a little old to get swept up in that. And then the other Disney princesses were kind of like, not as huge of a thing in the 80s. Maybe they were. I don't remember if there was as much branded bullshit around. Like you go to a store and it's like Disney everything. If you want like Disney blanket, Disney bed, like everything. They've got Disney everything. And I, I don't remember that when I was a kid. Maybe I, they did. I don't think there was
0: a Disney store.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's all like just for selling bullshit. And it's all so cheap. It's all so fucking cheap and gross.
0: Is this something you want to shield your children from or is it just inevitable?
2: It's interesting. So we moved to this area of the city that has really great public schools. It's Montrose La Crescenta. So it's got. Good schools, but it's kind of sheltered. It's got like a main street. Doesn't look like it's in LA, which we kind of wanted, but then I'm like, is she going to be too sheltered? It's this weird balance. I don't want her to be traumatized by something. I think you necessarily shield your child from danger. That's just inherent to being a parent. It's like imprinted on your DNA, that you want to shelter them from danger. Now, what kind of dangers are real or just perceived, right? So it's like, is this just a, an irrational fear that I have that's not based on data or any truth versus, oh, I don't want my kid running out in the street when there's cars. Okay, that's like a rational fear to keep your kid away from that. So I'm not there yet. I don't know. I am. I'm never going to write a parenting book because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs>
0: Maybe you should then. You uh, might be the yeah. most appropriate author I mean, in that case. Because yeah. I do think we're kind of in an era where the helicopter parent is looming over everything. Yeah. You struggle. Am I a helicopter parent? Am I a negligent parent? What's the right balance?
2: Yeah. I don't think I'm a helicopter parent just because of the hours that I work, (laughs) but that just might be a negligent parent. So now I feel guilty. It's great. That was not my intention. It's a fucking roller coaster, man. Life is. Yep.
0: And I think that's okay. And I think adversity is important too. Mm -hmm. And like you were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. to get into comedy, you're trying to fill some kind of void. Yeah. If you live the perfect life, it's going to be hard to have anything driving you like that.
2: Yeah. But I think even people with seemingly perfect lives probably have some darkness there to mine or some hole. Absolutely. You know, some insecurity. Other than Donald Trump, he has no insecurities He's whatsoever. just perfect. He's just perfect.
0: Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? No, what's that? That's where people who are incompetent at something yeah. think they're great. People who are pretty good at it think they're okay. And people who are amazing, excellent, yeah. have a, the perfect idea of where they fall in the pecking order. Huh? And it does apply to a lot of these things where yeah, it's often the most ignorant people that are so adamant about their position.
2: Yeah. Did you listen to the Doctor Death podcast? I haven't heard it. Oh, uh, it's about a neurosurgeon who's completely incompetent and just maimed a bunch of people in Dallas, Texas. Anyways, but same kind of thing where he just thought he was amazing and the motivation literally were like you're killing people, but he thought he was great. It's really pretty weird. fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Crazy. When I almost feel like we're enabling people like that now.
2: I think so, too, because it's like, think you're great all the time. You're wonderful. It's like all this self-help shit. And it's like, it's great to deep down have confidence about yourself, but it's okay to question yourself or it's okay to be reasonable about, well, that didn't work out. That was kind of shitty. I'm going to learn from that. You know, it's okay to want to get better, but to think you're already great is fucking nonsense.
0: It is a fine line. And with artistic pursuits, it's challenging because you almost need... Unbounded confidence coupled with crippling doubt.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, it's yes, yes, yes. It's the hubris effect. You're like either the best or you're the goddamn fucking worst. Working in this town, I've seen a lot of people who are not that great, but like really, really confident, and they go pretty far. Sometimes those people get very much rewarded. But That's then true. do people want to work with them again? Not really.
0: Yeah. Nepotism will play a role in that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah,
2: or rich kids. <laughs> it, it is a dilemma. Yeah.
0: To me, what I can personally relate to is even prior episodes of this podcast. I'm like, oh, I can't listen to that anymore. And it becomes very hard to appreciate what you've done. It's like, I learned this now. So the next thing's going to be better. It's always kind of the next thing. Yeah. But I do think it's important. Don't just discard everything. I think that's kind of a a portrait of an artist where this is all garbage. Yes. Destroy it all. Yeah. But some people might find value in the other work.
2: That's true. It's hard to think that when you're on the low, the self-loathing part of being an artist. But you don't have to make it as much of a roller coaster. I think that is also being older. If somebody doesn't like your thing, you know, that can suck. You got rejected. But it's not the only avenue. It's never the only avenue. It's one person's goddamn opinion. And people are opinionated and think they're right. And oftentimes, your rejection just has to do with a mandate they have from their development team that they need X, Y, Z. Or they want somebody who has ten million followers, which is not the best way to create, I don't think. I think we're gonna have we're gonna see a lot of backlash from that soon. It's I think a little that's,
0: unsustainable. It's I
2: unsustainable think. and I think it's complete style without substance. And not to say all those people with ten million followers aren't remarkable. Some of those people are remarkable, but just because you're famous does not mean you will make good art. That's not, I agree. Yeah.
0: I've been spending a fair amount of time on Twitter. Only as of recently, and yeah. you see a lot of that where something will have a million yeah. retweets and likes, and you're like, ugh.
2: That's not that great. Yeah. Yep. It's a little confusing. Yep, it's very confusing.
0: I want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything you want to bring up or any question you want to ask?
2: Uh, um, I don't know. My brain is spent. Um, what's a common thread you're seeing on the podcast?
0: I think there's kind of a mix with specifically feminism, Mm -hmm. where my thesis is that all of us are really feminists. We just don't all know how to define that term. And some of that's been supported by evidence where if you ask even women, I think this dates back about a decade, but if you ask women, are you a feminist? 24% said yes. If you say, are you a feminist who believes in gender equality? That jumps to about 66%, which still seems a little low to me. Yeah, yeah. But I think that there's also a stigma where some people are threatened by the idea of feminism, where it focuses on women need to take more as opposed to we should share all opportunity. Yeah, I
2: think it's a top-down kind of sum-zero look at it, this whole, like, winning versus losing versus do people at the top really need that much? Greed is very prevalent in our culture. And I think that goes to a lot of the feminist principles. It's like dudes trying to hold on to vast amounts of wealth. To me, it seems inherent that there can still be rich people and you know there's still gonna be poor people, but just the widening of that gap goes with that to me. This whole notion of not sharing, that just sparked that. It's not sustainable, what's going on.
0: Absolutely not. And I hope in the near future, we see it as a disease.
2: I hope so, too. To me,
0: it seems apparent that it's not money that's important. It's the accumulation. And ideally, I guess, the difference in the amount of money you have as opposed to everyone else. And that's very hard for me to relate to.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Man. Have you seen the Warren Buffett documentary? He talked about how it was just about accumulating the wealth for him. And how he was like, oh, this is just a game for me. But it's not really about anything. And I think... It's a game for a lot of people, but the way that our society realistically operates is you need money to function in it. So it's not a game for people at the lower end.
0: Like if you're not eating yeah, or you're not it's not a game. It's survival.
2: So like for the top end where they're just like, it's just like a game. Or, or the notion like, oh, but like if you tax us, then we're not going to be able to hire just like statistically that doesn't fucking work out. Corporate taxes are pretty low. The taxes on the rich right now are ridiculously low. And companies like GM are going to automation anyway, because that's what the future of the car industry looks like. So these tax breaks aren't helping anyone except executives. Exactly. So.
0: Yeah. Amazon's been a real issue for me with, why are we giving them any tax breaks?
2: No. For anything? Nothing. It's stupid. Anyways.
0: (laughs) Uh, On that note, (laughs) any closing statement you'd like to
2: make? No. Um, no, I don't know. I'm still learning. I've changed from mostly acting to now mostly writing and then getting into directing. And I always think I know how this industry operates. And then I learn more the more that I'm here. And I think the one thing that holds true is when you create something you really, really want to create and aren't trying to follow trends or what you think will sell. That's always the best piece of advice I could give anyone is just not to get doll schmaltzy, but like create from your heart, create what you want to fucking do.
0: That's a wonderful mentality, and it'll get you very far.
2: Uh, it hasn't really yet, but you know, take stay, it from someone famous. Stay with who's- it. <laughs>
0: to thank Anne again for taking the time to sit down with me and for being so honest. It's truly inspiring when someone is comfortable enough to open up about such a personal experience like postpartum depression. And I commend her for being a resource for others. But right now, the main story on female CEOs in the military industrial complex. <coughs> I gotta say, this is a topic that has me a bit conflicted. Recently, news sources have been running articles about how female CEOs are leading four of the top five military industrial contractors. And speaking as a man of even temper who always wants to avoid conflict, I have a lukewarm relationship with the military industrial complex. In this segment, Will's gonna help me by reading quotes. That way you can differentiate immediately between my opinions and what we're getting from an article. Personally, I very much agree with President Eisenhower's warning. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. President Eisenhower was a very smart man to recognize that so early on. So now I'm faced with a dilemma. With female CEOs leading four of the top five military industrial contractors, does this change my position? Is greater gender equality enough to overcome what I view as a problematic industry? For starters, it's rather refreshing that headlines like how women took over the military industrial complex aren't clickbait. When these articles say that women are running four out of the top five firms, they're not being disingenuous, in the sense that one firm in the top five dwarfs all the rest and is run by a man. Here's a look at some of the numbers. Lockheed Martin comes in at number one. Its president and CEO is Marilyn Hewson. Their 2017 funding was $50.7 billion. Next up at number two, the defense arm of Boeing, whose president and CEO is Leanne Carrot. Their 2017 funding was $23.36 billion. General Dynamics comes in third, whose chairman and CEO is Phoebe Novakovich. Their 2017 funding was $15.34 billion. At number four, we have Raytheon, which is run by some guy. We're not gonna spend any time talking about him. Their 2017 funding, was $14.66 billion. And finally, at number five, Northrop Grumman, whose president and CEO as of January 1st, is Kathy Warden, Their 2017 funding was $11.19 billion. So as you can see, women are overwhelmingly in control of this industry. To take a deeper look at this, we're going to draw from an article on RT.com titled Girl Power to Kill. In government, the Pentagon's top weapons buyer, the State Department's weapon seller, the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons chief, and the Secretary of the Air Force are all women. So you not only have women in leadership positions in the private sector, you also have them increasingly getting positions in government, which is great. With government more and more open to women in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, campaigning to even out the almost 80% male graduation rate, the current crop of female arms makers and buyers is part of the trend too. And I think seeing women in leadership positions like this might encourage younger generations to pursue careers like this. That said, I feel the need to remind people what this industry is all about. With US-made weapons responsible for thousands of deaths worldwide, including a conservative estimate of almost 250,000 civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last two decades and dozens of school children in Yemen. So again, while gender equality is great, maybe we should be taking a harder look at this industry as a whole. One Twitter user, San, aka, at S-A-N, S-D-N, articulated this well. The way intersectional feminism is going right now we're going to have a very diverse group of war criminals and capitalist patriarchs. I tip my internet hat to you, San. Well said. And finally, from that article on RT.com, some additional context. No matter the gender of the person at the reins, the U.S. maintains a military presence in some 177 countries worldwide, and the Department of Defense has an annual budget of almost $700 billion. War is big business for America's defense manufacturers, too. Lockheed Martin, Boeing Defense, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics made a combined $56 billion in the third quarter of 2018 alone. The next article is from Reason.com. An article might be a little generous. This feels like more of a, as the kids call it, a hot take. It is written by Lucy Stegerwald. Weirdly, the idea that girls running the military would improve things has supporters beyond the Beyonce empowerment wing of feminism. No less than scholars Francis Fukuyama and Steven Pinker have argued that women could make the world a more peaceful place, and in Pinker's case, that they already have. Fukuyama more boldly suggested, A truly matriarchal world then would be less prone to conflict and more conciliatory and cooperative than the one we inhabit now. And maybe he's right. Perhaps the ladies of Lockheed Martin and the rest will cooperate themselves into billion-dollar Pentagon deals for many years to come. Lockheed CEO Marilyn Hewson assures Politico that she intends to bring more women aboard and hopes to keep this brave new world of Pentagon women as more than a diversity blip. True equality, however, might evade us until women have to register for the draft, just like men. Then we can all kill equally. Personally, I'm a little wary of the phrase Beyonce empowerment wing of feminism. I don't really want to touch that one. And while I understand the skepticism, some of the dismissive tone raises some flags for me. But then again, there is an overwhelming sense of satire, so perhaps I'm looking into this too closely. That said, I do want to state that Women can be part of the patriarchy, too. Just because women are in charge doesn't make it a matriarchy. In this final article from Politico.com, author David Brown offers some testimonies from these women and other women in the field. I think there's a critical mass where you have enough women that they're getting noticed, said Rachel McCaffrey, a retired Air Force colonel and executive director of Women in Defense. To me, it's a national security issue, said Lynn Dougal, a former vice president at Raytheon, who is now the CEO of Engility. We need every mind, every person engaged, male, female, every race, every level of experience. In the long term, we need to make sure talent wins. Kathleen Hicks, senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, says that the national security community, more than other fields, generally rewards high performers, regardless of color or creed or gender. Whenever you have a meritocracy, you set the playing field to be more level. Hicks also served as deputy principal undersecretary of defense for policy in the Obama administration. She continues, it's a field that by and large is a meritocracy, it rewards merit. It doesn't always work that way, she stressed, but it's certainly a field where results matter significantly. And that's wonderful to hear, and I hope it's true. Based on some of the other stories we covered throughout this podcast, there often appears to be the illusion of meritocracy without it existing in practice. And some predators like Les Moonves even touted how merit-based the organization was. That said, many of these women are still realistic about the obstacles they face. McCaffrey, the retired colonel, said she experienced a lot of eye rolls along the way. She recalled the time she tried to kill a wasteful program in the Air Force and suspected it would have happened much faster if she were a man. We all know that no organization is perfect. You run into harassment, she said. The other side of the confidence coin with women is that in many cases, confident, assertive women are, I'll be frank, seen as bitchy. So you run into what is the right balance of being confident and assertive while also being seen as approachable. And what McCaffrey is talking about seems to run across all aspects of society. Many of the terms that we use to compliment men are seen as problematic when applied to women. Panetta, the Dean at Tufts says, all of these women have thick skin. Leanne Carrot, the CEO of Boeing's Defense, Space, and Security division said, women today still face challenges in her line of work, but it's often more self-imposed than it is institutional. In her words, Aspiration rather than access. We need women and men who can tackle really tough assignments without losing their sense of self or sense of humor, she said. And I'm going to quibble a little here. In a pure meritocracy, I would agree, but we don't live in one. America is not a meritocracy. In homogenous areas, there's the illusion of meritocracy. But even there, I think there's systemic issues keeping different demographics down. I think it's dangerous to suggest that you just have to be more confident and have greater aspirations. While that's an important part of it, I don't think that's a realistic route for many people and especially women, and definitely not for women of color. But maybe I'm in the minority here. Dougal, the CEO at Engelity, agreed that women can often be their impediment to promotion. One of my biggest challenges has been resisting the temptation to tell myself I couldn't do something, she said. I didn't think I was ready to be president of a multi-billion dollar business at Raytheon when I was offered the role. I continually remind myself to have courage and confidence." Gordon Haggerty, the senior energy department official added, "...either I thought I wasn't good enough or I needed to work harder to get to the next level. It's about me overcoming that challenge. I can't depend on others to fix the challenges that one encounters." We all face some level of adversity. And having the internal drive to overcome that is tremendous. I applaud anyone who has done that. But we also can't forget there are systemic issues that create artificial barriers and gatekeepers. For a more positive spin, here are some thoughts on what women bring to this industry that men may not. Panetta, who says she is often asked about the benefits of women in leadership, tells the story of soldiers in the desert using pantyhose to keep sand out of sensitive equipment. Do you think a guy thought of that? She asked. For the longest time, these male-dominated organizations missed half of the population's perception on an issue or on an approach. McCaffrey said women are less wedded to, we've always done it this way. Sometimes women are a little more willing to question that. McCaffrey then offered some other aspects in which women are effective. For one, women are shrewd negotiators. I've known women who were good negotiators because they were underestimated. The key to negotiating is making sure you know what other people's priorities are. Women tend to do that really, really well. Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson, the third woman to hold the job since the 1990s, told lawmakers last year, she believes it's perfectly natural for women to play a greater role in defending the country. If I ask everyone in this room to think about the most protective person you know in your life, someone who would do anything to keep you safe, half the people in this room think about their moms. We are the protectors, that's what the military does. We serve to protect the rest of you, and that's a very natural place for a woman to be. While I think the mama bear angle is an interesting way to frame this, I don't know if I'm on board with that assessment. That doesn't mean that I don't believe women are protectors, there's just something about that phrasing that doesn't sit right with me. It seems to be simultaneously drawing on patriarchal norms to dispel notions of patriarchy. I don't know if that makes any sense. We've already discussed encouraging more women to pursue STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And here are some additional thoughts on that. Hewson, as CEO of Lockheed Martin, says she has made it a priority to recruit more women. I am frequently approached by women at different stages of their careers who tell me that seeing a woman rise to the role of CEO is inspiring and motivating to them. That is immensely gratifying especially when television and movies often fail to show young girls positive portrayals of women leading and succeeding in the fields of science and engineering. She then adds, we want this positive trend to continue. We invest in a number of programs to inspire young women to focus on science, technology, engineering, and math in school. We want to encourage more young women to pursue STEM careers so they can help us tackle tough challenges. For me personally, McCaffrey sums up this entire issue very succinctly. I think this is great, added McCaffrey, but not if in 10 years from now, these women are gone and we're back to having all white men in these positions. I hope you enjoyed that main story. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to season one of Clarity. And I think we have just enough time for a sponsorship section. I have a bit of a unique sense of humor. Your mileage may vary on how successful that is. But after listening to a season of this podcast, I hope you're ready for Larry's feminist jokes. As if the target audience wasn't small enough already. With all the terms and concepts you learned throughout these 20 episodes, you should have no problem understanding these jokes. What did the second wave feminist say to the first wave feminist working at McDonald's? We demand more than franchise opportunities. <laughs> what do you call a men's right activist? Adam, Ben, Charlie, David, Evan, Fred, George, Henry, Isaac, Jimmy, Kenny, Lawrence, Mark, Nick, Owen, Paul, Quincy, Rick, Steve, Timmy, uh, Eugene, Victor, <laughs> Will, Xavier, Yancey, Zach, Alex, Brian, Chris, Duke, um, Eugene. <laughs> they like to call themselves pick-up artists. But if you're always picking something up, you're messy.